Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. Because we give a lot of gifts at Christmas, right? We spend like months planning for it. We have our shopping lists. We make our packages. We put pretty bows on. We have wreaths on the door, trees in our houses. And we do this incredible thing for the birth of Jesus. Then Easter, we also celebrate. We have a Good Friday service. We do a fasting the whole week leading up to Good Friday, the day Jesus went to the cross and was sacrificed in our place. And then we celebrate Easter like no other as Christians, the day Jesus rose from the dead, claiming victory over sin and death, and that he did for you and for me. But we don't really celebrate Pentecost like we should, do we? The day the Holy Spirit was sent. And where would we be as a church if the Holy Spirit had never come, right? So let's check this out. We're going to begin by looking at really what Pentecost meant to the Hebrews first, and then what it meant to the early church when the Holy Spirit actually was given. So first off, we're going to look at the fact that Pentecost celebrates God's provision. So if you have your outlines, write that down. Pentecost celebrates God's provision. Look at Leviticus chapter 23 with me. Verse 15 says, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves, two tenths of an epoch. Uh, they shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you can finish reading the rest of that later about the other offerings that came with these two loaves. But to begin with, we have to see that what they were celebrating was God's provision. And Pentecost took place quite literally 50 days after the, the well, Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits was a feast that began and, and signified the beginning of the barley harvest. At this point, the barley harvest has been completed and the wheat harvest is about to begin. And so they're going to offer up to the Lord these two loaves, signifying the fact that God has been faithful in the past. It commemorates God's past faithfulness. First off, God, you were faithful in that barley harvest. You saw my needs, you recognized my needs, you knew what myself and my family needed, and you blessed us, you provided for us. How many of you have come to understand and to know that our God is a God who provides? And he'll do that supernaturally if he has to, right? But he's always working in the midst of our faith. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was exhorting those at the Sermon on the Mount, and he said this, he said, you know, don't worry about what you're going to clothe yourself with. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about the roof that you have over your head. The Gentiles seek after these things. They worry about these things. You don't worry about these things because you have a Heavenly Father who knows your needs and wants to provide for your every need. Now, that word worry, I, I, I talk about this word often. It means in, to be anxious, to have an anxiety but quite literally, it means something that occupies every thought and every impulse of your heart. Let me repeat that. 
To worry is it's something that occupies every thought and every impulse of your heart. It's a distraction from God. Do you see that? When we spend our time worrying, worrying about where is our next bill going to come from? Where is our next rent check going to come from? Where is our next power bill payment going to come from? We're worrying about the issue. We're focused on our problem, and we forget that we have a mighty God who desires to provide for our needs, don't we? So Jesus says, don't worry about those things. Let me remind you of this. You have a heavenly father who knows your needs before you ask. And he provides for the lilies of the field. They're clothed more beautifully than you'll ever be clothed. Look at those lilies. You see the birds, how they fly? And God provides their every need. He feeds the birds. And if God feeds the birds, don't you think he wants to feed you even more? So you were created in his image. God provides for the needs of his people. And that's really what this celebration was all about to these Hebrews. They came, and they're remembering God's past faithfulness in the barley harvest. God, you provided for all of my needs. And I want to pause, and I want to ponder you, and I want to take my mind off of my problems. I want to take my mind off of my worries. I don't want to be distracted by the upcoming wheat harvest. I want to pause, and I want to give praise and glory to you because you provided all of my needs faithfully. You are a good God. Every now and again, we need to do the same thing, don't we? We need to push the pause button on life, and we need to come away, and we need to reflect upon what God has done for us. That's why we pause and we say grace before a meal, wherever we're at. My family and I, we will stop and we will pray. Is it that God needs our thanks? No. Does God really need us? Is he somehow, is his self-image or self-worth boosted when I remember to thank him? No. No. But we have this innate need within us to give God thanks, to remember that he is a faithful God. Do you see the difference? The scripture says this in James. It says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. That God is the giver of every good gift. And every now and again, just like the Hebrews would do for the Feast of Pentecost, we need to push pause button, we need to call a timeout, and we need to come apart, come away, and we need to give God thanks for how he's provided in our past. Maybe you need to start writing things down in your own life. Maybe you need to keep a little journal of those times when God has been faithful. Maybe you have trouble in your faith walk with the Lord. And if you start keeping track of those moments, those instances that God has supernaturally provided, something that you can go back to and you can reread when you're in a place of doubt or worry or fear, maybe your faith would grow. You see? So how are you doing in your walk with the Lord? Are you coming aside and thanking God for his past faithfulness? Now, not only would the Feast of Pentecost you know, commemorate God's past faithfulness, it would also anticipate God's future faithfulness. That's what the wheat harvest was all about. So here they are. They're they're celebrating in the past, but then they're bringing these two loaves, signifying the harvest that's to come in the wheat, and they're bringing them before the Lord, and they're waving them before the Lord, offering them up, saying, God, we're bringing to you our very first of this harvest. We're committing the rest of the harvest to you. We see that if this harvest is to be fruitful, to be beneficial, to provide for our needs, that's going to come from you and only you. And so they offer these before the Lord in anticipation of what God is going to do. Again, in your personal walk with Christ, do you anticipate God moving miraculously in your life? Do you wake up in the morning excited about how God is going to be able to provide for you today? 
Because if you're walking around with a cloud over your head like Eeyore all the time, that is not going to be attractive to anyone around you. If that's your mindset, if that's where your heart is at, why would anyone want to become a believer in Christ? We should wake up in the morning excited about the opportunity to allow God to glorify himself through our lives and even through our lack at some times so that God can supernaturally provide and so that people's faith can be built up. This is really what we do in tithing, isn't it? The scripture commands us to bring our first fruits to the Lord, to bring the first 10%, to offer it to God and say, God, everything, every gift comes from you. And so, Lord, I'm going to bring to you this offering, I'm going to bring to you in anticipation of your future faithfulness. I'm saying, Lord, I trust, I trust you for tomorrow's needs. I see the past and how you've provided, and I'm trusting you for tomorrow need, tomorrow's needs as well. Listen to what Proverbs chapter 3 says. It says that we should honor the Lord with our possessions, with the first fruits of all of our increase, so that our barns may be filled with plenty and our vats overflow with new wine. This is what that proverb is saying. It's saying that when we honor God, when we glorify God with our possessions, with our first fruits, that God takes note of that and that our barns will be filled. The word means to be well nourished, to not hunger, and that they will overflow, literally be bursting at the seams because God is going to pour out his favor on us. When we're faithful to say, God, I believe that what I have comes from you. Now, you have to understand from God's point of view what it looks like when we struggle. And it's okay if you struggle with giving. It's okay. God sees that. He understands that. But you have to understand what it looks like from his perspective. When we have trouble bringing to God our first fruits, it's as if he's looking and he says, you're not trusting me to provide the needs that I said I would provide. Which father wants their children to look at them that way? If my children didn't believe that I was going to be able to provide for them and put a meal on their table, I would be heartbroken. If they were always worried, trying to figure out scavenging for themselves, how to be able to put food on their own plate right now in their life, my heart would be broken. But that's what we communicate to God when we say, Lord, I don't trust you for what's coming next. Do you see? Now, that celebration and that anticipation of God's faithfulness, this is what we're called to do as believers even today. Malachi chapter 3, nowhere else in scripture does God say this, but listen to what God says in Malachi chapter 3. He says, will a man rob God, yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Well, in the tithes and in the offerings. You are cursed with a curse. You have robbed me, even this whole nation. The whole nation of Israel had stopped bringing tithes to God's storehouse. Now listen to what he says here. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this. Or another way to say that would be test me now in this. Prove me in this, God says. If I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour out on you such a blessing that there will not be room enough for you to receive it. The word pour out, it means to empty out upon. Think about God's resources. And God says that when you trust me with what you've been given, with your harvest, when you trust me with your harvest, test me in this and see that I'm not going to pour out upon you from my abundance. Can we receive all that God has to give? No, I guarantee you that he can outgive you. 
And the scripture says, I'm going to pour out. I'm going to lavish. I'm going to just abundantly bless you when you're faithful with your harvest. And so that's what this feast was. It was a feast of harvest. Now, the scripture says, and Jesus actually talks about this woman, a widow, and she was poor. And in those days, when they would come into the temple, they would make a huge extravagant scene about their giving. And so there were many rich people that came in, and they gave, Jesus said, out of their abundance. They had plenty. They weren't lacking anything. They gave their leftovers, literally is what Jesus is saying. They gave their leftovers into the treasury. And they gave a lot, he said. A lot monetarily. If you counted it up, it would equal a lot. But they had a lot to give. But this widow came in, and she gave two mites, two pennies worth. She dropped them in to the offering. And Jesus says they gave out of their abundance. They gave out of their fullness. She gave out of her poverty. Literally, she gave even though she's lacking her needs. She doesn't have enough to meet her needs. She gave her whole livelihood, Jesus said. What he's saying there is she gave her entirety. She gave everything. She held nothing back. And Jesus was commending her faithfulness. She understood what this feast would have been about. Looking back at how God had been faithful and anticipating how God would be faithful in the future. Are you with me? Pentecost was about trusting God. Pentecost was about saying, God, I believe you're a God who loves me enough that you're going to meet my needs. Now, not only does Pentecost celebrate God's provision, but Pentecost also celebrated God's precepts, God's law. Again, when they came with these loaves and they offered these loaves, these two loaves, these two loaves, the, the uh, rabbis actually taught, signified the two tablets that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with, which the Ten Commandments were written on. Are you following me? So they're commemorating the giving of God's law. They wave these two loaves, which symbolize the, the, the scripture, symbolizes God's law and God's provision for their need, right? So here's how this works. 50 days after the wave offering, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, the rabbis taught that that's the exact day upon which Moses received the law from Sinai. So now what does the law do for us? Why is the law reason to celebrate? Why do we celebrate God's precepts? The first reason is because the law exposes my sin. And if the law wasn't there to expose my sin, where would I be? Listen to what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 7. You can turn there if you'd like. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. Paul says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, the exact opposite. Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. If the law hadn't told me what sin was, I would not have known what sin was. He goes on, he says this, For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment. That word opportunity means a launching pad. It means the beginning. It means the source of something. So the law was the launching pad. It made me understand what sin was. Now, how many of you have ever told your children to... to I'll use an example from my own life, right? <laughs> Maybe you've heard me tell this story before, but when I was little, my dad came home from work. He was a police officer, and he put his knife down that he carried with him on the dresser. He had to go take a shower, and he says, whatever you do... And, of course, what I heard 
is this. Whatever you do in the entire whole world, the only thing that you will never, ever, ever be able to do is this one thing. And that one thing was touch this knife. And so as soon as he was out of the room, guess what I wanted to do more than anything in the entire world? I wanted to touch that knife. And so guess what I did? I touched that knife. And I opened that knife, and that knife was shiny. And the mark that it made on my thumb was red. And it dripped down my arm, and there was a pool of blood on the bed. And when my dad came out of the shower, he followed the trail of blood to the kitchen sink where I tried to wash it off. And then he followed me into my bedroom where I was hiding in my closet, hoping that I wouldn't get caught. I still have the scar to prove the fact that I'm a sinner right there. Every time I give a thumbs up, it's there. But that's what the law does. It says you're a sinner. The law says don't covet. Guess what we do? We do naturally what we say we shouldn't do. And so here, here's what Paul is saying is that, that that law, it exposes my sin. James put it this way in James chapter 1. You can read it later on. He said that the law is like a mirror, that God's word is like a mirror. And when you go in front of the mirror, the mirror, it reveals your true character. It shows you who you really are. And so as we read the scriptures, as we read God's law, his precepts, it's exposing the sin that is in our hearts. And it's showing us that we have issues that we need to deal with. Here's what's sad is a lot of times we go to the mirror and we check ourselves out in the mirror. We would be horrified if we came to church with a piece of spinach stuck in our teeth, right? Horrified. We want to make sure that our hair is just right or lack of hairs are just right, right? I use the volumizing shampoo. It works well, doesn't it? But we check ourselves out in the mirror. The w way we should study the scriptures is the same way. We come to the law. We come to God's scriptures so it will reveal what we need to address in our hearts. It reveals our character defects. It shows us those areas where we're failing or lacking or need improvement. And if we walk away from that and we don't do it, the scripture says we're deceiving ourselves. We're being fake. We're not real. But if we observe ourselves in that mirror, the mirror of the word, and we go away and we do what God's word says, then the scripture says we're going to be blessed in all that we do. How many of you have found that to be true? That when you do what God's word says to do, no matter how difficult or how hard it is, you will end up blessed. God blesses obedience. He blesses faith when we say, God, I'm going to obey your word. Even though it hurts me, I will obey your word. So it exposes my sin, but the law also reveals my need. I have a need. I have a need, and I can't meet this need on my own. I can't satisfy God's law on my own. No matter how hard I try, no matter how good I try to be, I will never live up to that standard. Here's what the scripture says in Romans chapter 3. It says in Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth should be stopped, that all the world should become guilty before God. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Reading the law and trying to keep the law, it will never satisfy what is lacking in my life. It just shows me that I have a need. Listen to what it says in a few verses before that in Romans 3.10. It says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. When the scripture says no, not one, you realize that that means every single one of us in this room are all clumped together, right? That there is none of us who do good. None of us who naturally seek after God apart from God's wooing and the wooing of his spirit says that we've become unprofitable. The word means of no use. That apart from Christ, we are of no use. That the scripture, the scripture tells us that apart from Christ, we can do nothing of value, nothing of worth. So if you want your life to count for something, to mean something, you have to be found in Christ. Now the scripture declares to us that the wages of sin is what? Death. Sin equals death. Sin equals death. Once we get that down, once we understand that, and we understand that we're all sinners, we realize that what we deserve is death. As a matter of fact, on the day the law was given, the day that Moses came down from the mountain with those two tablets that are recognized by those two loaves at this feast, the day Moses came down from the the mount, he found the people corrupting themselves, worshiping a false god. They had made for themselves a golden calf, They were dancing around the golden calf, saying that that was their God, making sacrifices to it, and Aaron, his brother, allowed it all to happen. And so Moses, in his frustration, he slams down the tablets, they break, he goes, and 3,000 people are slain that day. 3,000 people lose their lives the day the law is given. Why? Because sin equals death. It has always equaled death, and it always will equal death. So the law comes, and it declares, it exposes our need. It says, you are a sinner, and you will die unless you find the Savior. Is there anyone in the room who's found the Savior with me? Because the other thing the law does, aside from showing us that we're a sinner, exposing our sin and and revealing our need, is it declares who our Savior is. The law declares my Savior. Listen to this. This is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. It says, but the scripture has confined all under sin. Who's confined under sin? Who does the scripture declare is under sin? Everyone in this room. You can raise your hand right now and say, that's talking about me. It's like God knew me. There I am right there, right? The scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe But before faith came, we were kept under guard or we were preserved or protected by the law. The law was there to protect us, to guard us, to preserve us, right? So that was there for a time, kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, our guide to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. You hear that? The law served a purpose. And the law was there to point the way to Jesus, to point the way to the Christ. The law was there as a flashlight shining upon our lives, shining upon our hearts, saying, you have a problem, you have sin, you're going to die. But there's a Savior coming. And so the whole scripture, Jesus said this, behold, in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. All of the scripture was written to point to Jesus, to point to the Christ, to point to the Messiah. It was there in that moment when Jesus came as a baby that all of the Old Testament was fulfilled in one man, 
in one person, the sinless Lamb of God who came to take away our sin. It declares who my Savior is. Now, listen to this. Let's just take, now the scripture says, the scripture is clear. There's over 350 different prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.